we've got this concept um, that we call support and challenge, basically. And what it basically says is that some people are great at offering support, but they don't offer challenge. Some people don't offer neither. Some people are great at offering challenge, like high expectations, accountability, but don't offer support. And actually leaders who are effective, leaders who liberate others, they have a means of offering both challenge and support. When I was looking at your background, there was mm. something that I thought was quite profound mm. uh, to start off with, which was, let me get that up. It was a comment, I think. Yeah, here it is. Mm. You had a, a realisation mm. when a friend asked you an innocent question. Mm. And I'm guessing that happened in your youth. Yeah, it did, yeah. Yeah. What yeah. was the realisation you had? Yeah, and how did that yeah. shape yeah. and put you on the path that you're on now? Yeah, no, there's a variety of contributing factors that have put me on the path that I'm on now. But I think with that particular conversation, is actually when I was in secondary school. Mm. And um, I wasn't the smartest kid, like as a secondary school student and to be fair from primary upwards. So we were in an RE lesson and a good friend of mine, like he, he nudged me and goes like randomly, he goes, James, how much money does your mum give you for school each day? And then I worked out at that particular point, I was thinking like year 10, year 11. So it worked out at about approximately about five pounds a day, basically, because you used to get a day pass, bus pass. I think they were two pounds mm. and then like three pounds for lunch. So then when he asked me that, I started to do, I started to add it up. So I was like, okay, approximately like, you know, in a week, that's 25 pounds in a month. That's a hundred pounds span of a year. That's 1200 pounds approximately. And then um, I times it by five and it was like, that's about 6K. And then that was like, just, you know, food and travel. It wasn't my, like, I don't know why, but you know, you know, when you're in secondary school, everyone thinks they're going to play for Arsenal. So like yeah. you're slide tackling in, a, <laughs> in your uniform. So I went through so many shirts, so many ripped trousers, wallabies. So I just started to add it up and I was like, like, you know, single parent household. So I was like, I know I'm not the smartest kid in my school or whatever, but this has to make sense. So I think that moment honestly was like quite significant for me because it was like, it's almost like the penny dropped out. You know, my mum, she had invested in me quite significantly despite circumstances. And again, like I wasn't the brightest spark, but I was like, I have to make it make sense after five years, basically. So it just kind of got me doing things slightly different in order to try and get different results. Um, but yeah, that would be the question. How much your mum mom give you for school? Basically. So that mm. question sort of set you on the path of wanting to go into entrepreneurship then wanting to better your life and yeah, entrepreneurship money. wasn't even on the radar like that at that particular point, if I was to be honest with you. I think it was just a matter of just, I guess at that point in time, it was just like past school. <laughs> like it was just basic. It was like, I was about 15. I weren't really thinking about entrepreneurship massively, although there was definitely seeds of it around that time. Like in, in our secondary school, we had a booming industry in the playground for selling things like triples and and like biscuits and, yeah. and cookies and donuts. And there was, it was quite a, a broad market, you know, and I was, I, I, I did get into that, into that market space as a secondary school student. And I, I, when I look back now, retrospectively, I can definitely identify that there was, there was definitely an entrepreneurial, like, edge to me like so I remember when I when I said oh, okay I'm gonna start selling like sweets and cho cho chocolates and stuff so I remember what I did is I went to like in my area in North London years ago in Lower Holloway we used to have what was called the 99p store basically so I got a, a small bag of like Snickers or I just went to find chocolate with caramel in it so I think it was, I got a Snickers, no Mars. I think it was like a Mars bar in the end. And I was selling them and I basically said, if you can eat this Mars bar in under 20 seconds, then you get one free. So then obviously people lined up and were like, yeah, yeah, bring that. And it's like, obviously you have to pay. So they will pay for the Mars bar and then they'll try and eat. But the caramel was just giving them problems basically. And no one was able to do it. And when I look back now, I'm like, okay, that was quite entrepreneurial to be fair. But at the time, again, it wasn't on my radar. At the time it was just a matter of like, yeah, just making things make sense. At least academically. 
Yeah, that's quite interesting actually. Mm. I feel like in all of the loads of schools, there's always the the, the Del Boys. Yeah, leaders, totally. Yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, there wasn't yeah. anyone in my school doing stuff like that. Right. <laughs> like yeah, that, yeah, 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 yeah. That was a part. Of, that was a part of the pitch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then take me back to what your the environment was like. Because yeah. also you grew up in Islington. Andover I did. Yeah, State, yeah. Right? Andover State. Yeah. What was what was that like? Yeah. What was the environment? Like? I think Andover State is uh, is. Like I can't speak about Andover without smiling. Like it's a place where I, I, I love it. I love where I grew up. Um, and um, it shaped me massively. Um, basically, like most inner city estates, you know, you've got you've got a sense of community, a lot of diversity, like a lot of that. So you, that kind of fosters your ability to relate to all different types of people. And then there's the reality of crime. You have crime that was there. And that was a part of part of the estate, to be fair. And unfortunately, um, with the estate where I grew up, it had issues with other local estates and that kind of peaked in troughs and, and uh, in terms of how serious that got. But um, yeah, it's a place that I love. It's a place that I love. And and, it's, and, and I think now I'm thankful to God for some of the experiences that I had there and some of the lessons that I learned while being um, just growing up on Andover. And then I had the opportunity to serve as a youth worker and a youth minister in the local area for the best part of like 10 years, actually where I met my wife, basically, um, doing youth work on Andover Estate. Yeah. Uh, a modern, modern day love story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> something like that, something like that. Yeah. Something yeah. like that, yeah. Uh, yeah. You mentioned you grew up in a single parent household. Mm. So what, um, how, uh, did your mum teach you any specific like lessons or anything mm. like that? And how much of an impact did she have on you? Yeah, 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 yeah. Up? The marge was massive. Definitely. <laughs> the marge is definitely massive. And oh, in terms of, of, of the lessons that she taught me, many, many, many lessons, I would say, man. Um, what was interesting was um, I think, yeah, like just a variety of things. I, I just think that whatever I pursued, she was behind me. And she definitely had this way of uh, allowing me to feel like I could do anything I put my mind to. And yeah, so so I would say that was a key thing. And then I think my faith is something that when I became, when I was 17, actually, I started to take my faith as a Christian really seriously. And I think my mum played a part to that. Um, growing up, it's not something I really owned and stuff. It's just grow up, you go to church. But I kind of had an interesting sort of like a um, few years and um, just little things actually that my mum would say and do that definitely sowed significant seeds that got me to think and reflect about where I'm at just as a person. Um, so my mum definitely um, taught me a lot of things basically, but not, not if I was to be honest, not very much, not, not massively explicit to be fair. Um, you know, they say some things are taught and some things are caught. And so my mum's one of these mums where my cousins call her mum. Do you get me? We have wider family members that call her mum, call her mummy. Do you get me? Not even just mum, mummy. Yeah. And there's the significance <laughs> in that, in that yeah, do you yeah. get me? In that, in yeah. that distinction there, like, I think. Um, so there's something about just the love and just capacity and generosity, I think, that she demonstrated when we were growing up that I do think is definitely rubbed off on on me yeah yeah it's quite interesting though because i feel mm. a lot of the times it isn't necessarily like a one explicit moment mm. you can sit down and look back on and be like yeah. okay wow this was the one conversation yeah. we had that yeah set me on a path it's mm. like just over you throughout your entire youth basically that's it that's it um your, your upbringing and that like just little things that's it hearing the little things maybe experiencing love in the way you've experienced yeah love, exactly or, um, little conversations here, little conversations there, mm. little, little 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 gestures. You yeah. come to that realization through your friend asking you that question that your mum is sacrificing mm. a lot and putting a lot into you. Yeah, yeah. Really, um, probably very difficult for her at the time as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think it's a lot of little things that mm. over time you get to a stage and you're looking, you're like, mm. wow, okay, yeah, you know? yeah. Um, all of these things have come together into, mm. into this melting pot in terms of look, um, sculpted me into this person I am, and yeah. Um, yeah. I feel like, well, for you, you sort of like you get to a stage and then you feel like All right, I've got to, mm. I've got to do something that I've got to mm. work and then maybe give back or mm. do whatever I can do. Mm. Um, but I feel like it's often a culmination yeah. of different little things. And it's hard to pinpoint yeah. the one specific thing. Totally, totally. And I think definitely in my case, it's just a variety of events and experiences, interactions with, you know, family, wider family, the community, at large, I think all of these things play a key part, you know, and I think there's value in trying to create space to pause and 
detect and discern like what you can draw from what's taking place. Yeah. Uh, what was your mom's stance on education? Mm. I asked that. Yeah, go Because you said that in school you yeah. wasn't the brightest kid in school. I weren't, yeah. But you're in this education space. Yeah, now. yeah, 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 yeah. You yeah. see like some of the reason how you ended up <laughs> in this space. Like going through it. I'm not in this space. To be fair... No, to be fair, my mum, I can't lie. This is is so weird. This is probably what drove me to want to leave with some decent grade. Cause I didn't leave with A stars, but I left with, I left with like a few C's and above to a point where I was able to go college and have a conversation about being able to do a variety of courses where once upon a time, it was like that wouldn't, the conversation would have looked different. But my mum had this really... So now when we work with staff teams we've got this concept um, that we call support and challenge, basically. And what it basically says is that some people are great at offering support, but they don't offer challenge. Some people don't offer neither. Some people are great at offering challenge, like high expectations, accountability, but don't offer support. And actually leaders who are effective, leaders who liberate others, they have a means of offering both challenge and support. And I think my mum kind of naturally did that. And then what was sick is that where I grew up, my aunt lived on the fourth floor as well, my oh, cousins. Yeah. And, my, <laughs> so, and my aunt also, like, my aunt was more challenged, but like, it was needed, to be fair. And so I think um, in terms of my mum's stance on education, it was definitely like, I'm from Ghana, like, you, there is that sense in which you value it. But I never had this sense that, like, it was like a game breaker, you know, it was, there was definitely a freedom of just like, work out what works for you. But at the same time, just make it make sense. Don't come back to the house and things just, uh, you know, it just don't make sense. Mm. So I think there was a balance of push and pull. There was a balance of support and, and challenge that I think challenged me and invited me to consider, okay, like, what can I do with what I have? Yeah. yeah, I love that concept of support mm. and challenge. I don't mm. think I've I haven't heard that before, mm. or at least I haven't heard it articulated like that before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but the way you explain it, it makes yeah. so much sense. Yeah, yeah. You need a bit of both. You need yeah. the challenge mm. so that you don't rest on your laurels. That's it. But you need the support to help you to get to that's it. where you need to get to. That's it. That's it. That's it. You know, it's an amazing company that I'm I'm trained by actually called Giant, and yeah, definitely has influenced a lot of the work that we do with with leadership teams. With the support and challenge, mm. how do people? And I know you do it. In, Probably mm. long coaching yeah. workshops oh, or whatnot, yeah, course, but yeah. uh, in a nutshell, mm. how can a leader, particularly a leader that has um, maybe working with young people, has working in some kind of organization with a social purpose and they're trying to yes. move and impact some kind of change yeah, yeah, with yeah. their people? Yeah, how yeah. do they do that? That's a massive question, but a very important one. The reason why it's so important is because, particularly for practitioners that find themselves in a place where there's a social cause to what they do, or maybe they work with a group of people that arguably might be deemed as like disadvantaged in some particular way. What can happen is if you're not mindful, you can find yourself applying yourself where you're offering a lot of support, but you're not accompanying that with challenge. The sad thing about that though is that it fosters a community, it fosters a culture of um, entitlement and, and mistrust. It's this sort of cozy sort of culture. And so it's important, like in my youth work days, I used to see it in my youth work days, actually that used to be a bit of a part of my story to be fair. And then I had to learn, nah, you got to make sure that you're dialing, that you're dialing up the challenge because if not, you're almost unintentionally inviting people into this cozy entitled sort of place. So in terms of how you do it, um, there's a variety of ways I think one of the ones is is being a practitioner that's willing to tell the truth in a loving way. I think that's important. I think it's got something to do with expectations, being clear on what expectations are and holding others to expectations. But another thing that we say when we work with teams is that it can be done collaboratively. So literally like in a supervision instance or in a management instance or whatever, you could just ask the person who you're working with, what support do you need from me? And then they'll give their answer. Then you can ask, okay, what challenge do you need from me? Um, and then they'll give their answer. And then you, from the answer they give, you can discern whether or not you think that's sufficient. But at least it's been done collaboratively. 
they might say, our oh, challenge to me looks like, <laughs> you know, work starting a little bit later. <laughs> you're like, mm, that don't sound like challenge to me. <laughs> but at least you're being collaborative about it. And then you share what challenge looks like and what the standard's going to be. And then you can work out if there's anything that's going to get in the way of that and what you can do to facilitate that happening from a leadership perspective. So I would say collaboratively is key. But expectations, when we work with leaders, one of the key things that contributes to many teams fumbling is not being explicit with expectations are or not holding yourself and others to same said expectations. Um, but a lot of it is, is around accountability as well. Challenge looks like accountability. It looks like the recommunication of expectations. It looks like holding people to deadlines. Um, it looks like stretching people as well beyond what they envisioned they were capable of. And actually saying, you know, you're, you're, there's so much more in there that you can actually go on to do. Like, let's, let's pursue that. Let's be courageous and curious enough to actually pursue what it looks like when you're at your, your best. And holding them to that, I think, is, is what challenge looks like as well. Yeah. I've got two questions off the back. Go of, for it. And I want to ask them both because I feel like I might forget one. <laughs> go for it. Go for it. Go for it. The first one, mm. uh, you spoke about telling the truth in a loving way. Mm. How do you do that? Especially when it's a difficult truth. Mm. Um, not everybody is comfortable with conflict. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. Comfortable it's true, with true. confrontation, even, yeah, I should say. Yeah, it's true. Uh, but you get someone slacking or maybe yeah. they're not doing things in the way you want them done. Mm. You want to tell them the truth. But mm. how do you do that in a loving way? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also the second question was on the support and mm. challenge part when you mm. said that you talk to your people and be like, what support do you need? What mm. challenges you need from me? Mm. Uh, often what I find and I'll talk from a personal perspective is that mm. you don't even know mm. what support you need you don't know what challenge you need and right. until the support is offered right. you do not know like yeah. some not everybody but mm. sometimes I just don't know I can yeah. be like I'm okay yeah, <laughs> until yeah, yeah. the support is offered I'm like oh right okay yeah, I true. didn't need that actually you know? fair enough uh, fair enough fair enough how do, you, how do you deal with that as well cool so the first question in terms of what does it look like to communicate truth in a loving way I think underneath that a significant factor is the context of relationship in a team context, another approach that we use is this whole idea of, of whether you're for one another, whether you're against one another, or whether you're for yourself. And whenever I think of that, I always remember a time years ago when me and my little cousin on the estate were playing Knockdown Ginger. Uh, yeah. And like, um, <laughs> and I don't know why, but we decided to play it on his next door neighbor's door. So remember how he lives on the fourth floor, I live on the eighth. <laughs> so we've gone down and he's knocking the door and we're running, I'm knocking the door and we're just swapping. And so where it was is like at the end of the corridor, there was a, a, a lift that had broken down basically. And um, so it was a heavy lift. It was an electronic one. Sorry, a lift. It was a door that had broken down and the door was heavy and it was electronic, but it had busted. So you had to give it some welly basically. So then I'm ringing the door. <laughs> and then no one's opening Then he did it And no one opened And then I did it No one opened He did it No one opened And then I did it again But then from nowhere The owner just swings at me So I'm, before when I was knocking the door There was a whole heap of guy guy and chess and, yeah. But as soon as he I was, I was like Run he's coming <laughs> So he's chasing us And then as I said The heavy door was there And my cousin was ahead of me so as he's approaching it, and you know when these things are happening, it's like slow motion in your life, like you're seeing your life like just drift away. Yeah. But my cousin, I was like, there ain't going to be enough time for us both to get through that door. But he pushed open the door and then he held it open for me. And he allowed me to run. And then he ran behind me, meaning that the, the brother that was chasing us was behind him. <laughs> so I got to the top, we got to the top and we laugh about it now. But it's like, that's, that's something because sometimes I'm like, would I have held the door open for him? Like, like might have. <laughs> and I guess with the whole for one another, against one another, for yourself, I guess what I'm saying is him holding the door like that, he's for me. He could have pushed the door and left it to open. I mean, left it to close. That would have been him being for himself. Worst case would have been he pushed the door for himself and shut it behind, shut it behind him and leave me with the, the guy chasing us. That would have been him against me. And what I'm saying is that in order to have these conversations where you can speak truthfully in a loving way, they work best in a context where you're convinced that the person that's line managing you, working with you is for you. They're not calling you out. They're calling you up, basically. And so I think when that's clear, then I'm willing to hear what anyone has to say that I, when I'm convinced that I know that they're, they're fighting for me to thrive as opposed to, I'm not even sure 
you know? So I think that's a really helpful way. Another thing is being super specific. I think if we're actually wanting to workshop an issue, when we're clear and specific about what needs to be improved, we're willing to listen about what led to what we've seen, but then we're also conscientious enough to come up with solutions as to what better looks like in a collaborative manner. Again, I think that that's, you can only, I think it's hard to take offense in a situation like that, but it, it, it still happens. But I think being specific, being future focused, being solution focused, I think those core attributes contribute to speaking the truth in love, I think. Yeah. Oh, thank you. That was, that was really good actually. Yeah, I appreciate it. And then that's um, sort of like being, like being a team player mm. in essence and finding people that latch on or relate to whatever cause mm. or purpose or thing that mm. you're working towards, something that resonates with them as well. Yeah, yeah. I guess in a nutshell. Mm. How do you find people like that? Mm-hmm. Like people like, for example, with you, you've, um, you've, well, I know you're right now you're doing the Interscope and yeah. you're speaking, you've got a team that you work with. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. Whatnot. I'm, I'm assuming, mm-hmm. tell me if I'm wrong, but I'm assuming those times earlier on in your career where mm-hmm. you're working with people who, uh, I probably work with you on a voluntary basis. Mm. Uh, and whether that's through your youth work, mm. whether that's through the work you're doing now, I mean, everything mm. is centered around youth work, isn't it? Mm. But whether that's earlier, you're doing it now. And then how do you get these people to rally towards mm. your you and what yeah. you're doing? Maybe yeah. when there's other opportunities that might be more lucrative. Mm. How do you get those people around you? How do you find them and how do you communicate that vision to them? Mm. I think what's really cool is that where my... my um the work that I do it is in relation to working with young people, not solely, but working with young people. I think there's just something about when you're clear about what you're about, passionate about it. And when your passion has contributed to practice in terms of, because you're passionate about it, you're willing to learn really well in order to serve really well. Then it's almost like, why wouldn't someone want to join if they have a similar passion? Do you get what I'm trying to say? So if you can demonstrate success and if you can demonstrate that, yeah, uh, productivity in a particular sort of, you know, field of work and then your heart behind it is on point, then you will just find that people that match that sort of approach will just, yeah, they'll, they'll come along, yeah. I think. Yeah. How did you get into the youth work mm. in general? It's a good question, man. How did I get into youth work? So uh, it's a big story, man. It's a long story. I'm trying to, how how I got into youth work basically was um, like, yeah. So when I was, when I, when I was about 16, 17, I was super passionate about pursuing like a, like a hip hop, like UK grime and UK hip hop sort of career. Like everybody was, but I said career. Yeah. I, I saw your videos on YouTube. Oh, is it? Oh yeah, yeah, uh, no, channel, like, yeah. so, so a lot of the stuff that I was doing was pre, it was pre, it was pre YouTube, it was pre channel <laughs> you. So whatever you can find, I think I came across, I came across one of my old clips and one of the comments was, oh, cause I couldn't think of anything snazzy. So my, my MC name was JA was my initials. Yeah, yeah. And I see someone in the comments like, oh, something like, oh, um, you need to go on. You need to go on underground Chinese websites to find JA stuff or something like that. In the in the, in the, in the comments, basically. So it was a time ago. I think this. I think year. If I was to pin it down to year, like probably two thousand and three, two five. This is a long time ago. But anyway, long story short, um, I was super passionate about my music. Um, it's what I wanted to do with the rest of my life, to be honest. And then, um, but yeah, as I said to you, there was definitely this instance in and in, in a point in my life where. Um, yeah, unfortunately, um, yeah, like, although I, I grew up in a single parent home, I had a relationship with my dad. Um, so I'll see him, at, um, I'll spend like summer holidays with him or certain, certain weekends and stuff. And then I remember getting a call from my nephew, um, that my dad wasn't doing too well. And, um, and around this time, Again, music was my everything. So it meant that, you know, Rites of Passage had to get itself on pirate radio station. Me and my core group of friends were on a, a pirate radio station in North London. Um, we were doing like local shows and stuff. And to be fair, around this time as well, we were also talking to a few like um, labels as well. So everything I could have wanted from a music perspective was actually taking place. Um, 
But there was a variety of events that were nudging me to appreciate <clears throat> that there was definitely more to life, to be honest. So long, not long story short, essentially, I go and visit my pups and I see him like um, with tubes in his, in his, in his, um, yeah, through his nose and stuff. We weren't doing too well. And then like, yeah, about a few days after that, he passed away. And so that was like really, really significant for me. And I found that in that time, although I had so much identity in how I saw myself as a musician, I found that I wasn't running to my music. I found that actually I was running to God. I found that I was praying. I found that I was, there was, for me, there was like, yeah, this sense of like my relationship with God, basically that became significant for me. So it was around that time actually, where I was like, you know what, like, as what was mad as well is there was a time that I was like, I had the opportunity of actually being like an opening act with an amazing beatboxer. This is years ago, um, an amazing beatboxer for like Ludacris when he came to the Hammersmith Apollo. I think this was like 2000 of, 2005, I think, Hammersmith Apollo. So again, everything I could have wanted was happening, but there was just like a void that wasn't just hitting for me, to be fair. So then... For me, that's when my faith actually came alive. Where I was like, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna follow Jesus basically. And although there was so much of this emphasis on music, I said I'm gonna put that on pause. And around that time, my sister's older boy, my, my older, my older sister's boyfriend, he was a youth worker, and so he's seeing this whole journey take place and trying to get his head around it. A lot of people like. You know, James, like, what are you doing? Um, you're like, you were the next one to, you know. But for me, there was something that I perceived as more valuable than what status and, you know, I guess the aspirations I had at that time could achieve. Um, so it was like, come in. All right, so my sister's boyfriend was like, well, just come and volunteer at the youth club. And like, that was just, the, the, the rest is history, man. I loved it because I don't know why, but again, I grew up on Andover Estate and I, I just had such a, and, and I still do, um, but just such a deep love for where I grew up. Um, and I think if I was to think of, if I was to honestly like pin it down to a moment, actually, I think when I was really, 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 really young, I want to say about nine, where I grew up, there was another estate just across the road called, um, six acres estate and at this time both of them had different little cliques basically and so there was a uh, there was a like a gang fight that I saw um, between the two of them and it was kind of a funny one at one point someone bit someone in the stomach like it was it was funny right. at some at some particular uh, certain aspects but I do remember and it kind of seared in my brain I do remember like, I, I can't remember the whole discourse, but I remember one of them saying, like, talking about, like, rep your ends, like, rep your ends. Like, by the way how he said it, it was so, there was so much conviction, yeah, that it imprinted in me at that young age. But I never felt massively compelled to express that in a way where it meant, like, the typical way of expressing it. So I don't know. That's my attempt to try and pin it down to a moment. All I knew is that there was definitely a time in my life where as a youth worker, because we had an example on the estate, um, where as a youth worker, like there was, there, was a, there was a guy on the estate that was a local youth worker and lived on the estate for years, still lives there now. And I thought that was going to be me, you know, because I had such an affinity to where I was serving and where I grew up. Like it's an amazing thing to be doing youth work and it's like, I know your older brother and we're here trying to get you a job. Do you get me? Things like that. So... That's how I got into youth work. My, my, my older sister's boyfriend said, come and volunteer. I started volunteering and I started learning about the craft of youth work. Like those who know, it's quite sad because youth work does get a, a, not a great rep now. But those who do know, there is this art to it. And so uh, I started to, to learn that. And then I went on to do a degree in youth work at UEL. And then we did a module in mentoring, counseling and coaching. And that's when I discovered coaching. And I was like, no, I love this whole coaching thing. And that was one of the significant things that led to me starting a coaching company today. Yeah. Wow. Brilliant. Yeah. Wow. 
I think so. What it's like you, the two major events of so your father's passing mm. and making you realize okay, there's bigger things mm. or the music is not. It's not everything. You know, it's not yeah. everything. It's not your one number one mm. thing that you're running to. And then this uh, other incident when you're younger and the guy say wrap your hands and mm. probably you look probably you looking at that I'm thinking. Uh, there's so much more mm. um, Maybe even later on Because a lot of times You know These things just seem To your subconscious That's it You're there and then And then you're just You just take it on board you're like mm. yeah cool Whatever And it's just in your subconscious mm. And later on Maybe we'll take other events For that to bring That back out of you And you're mm. like Man mm. these, Maybe these these kids Need some direction Or mm. some Something You know mm. We've got to do something about it And I guess it's that yeah. Along with you just being Growing up in your area And that Just all of these things Just push you yeah, down the path you've gone down, man. Yeah, totally. When I was young, I used to feel like um. When I was young, I used to feel like um. Like there was a lyric I that that used to um, and used to say um, living on a council estate is fine, but it's a madness if you live with a council estate of mind. And for me, that was inspired by a lot of things. Like around that time, actually, we had an amazing artist called like Skinny Man who didn't grow up too far away from um, us and actually had the honor of for a little time. Like he taught me as an understudy for a short span of time. So that was definitely informed by some of that. But there was definitely this time where I felt like, there were times I felt like, yo, like, oh no, you just kind of feel like, like where I grew up was very, like many estates, very concrete. It's a lot of concrete, like, and, and it's like, you almost feel like, who's like, ain't like, who's gonna do something? <laughs> like, who's gonna create opportunities? Like, who's gonna, who? So it wasn't even this sense of like, I know the way I'm going to, it was more like, we're all here. So let's try and make something of the fact that we're here. Let's, let's do something. And I think that was a massive, like, we're, yeah, that was a massive driver for me. And just the reality of how easy, I'm, I'm not only that, but it's like, again, when I, when I was doing youth work, um, I came across this, um, yeah, this theory from criminology called the strain theory. And basically, if I remember correctly, it's from a guy called Agnew, who basically said that one of the contributing factors or, or, or a lens of that which lends itself to delinquency is um, a removal of a positive role model in your life, like your dad, being presented with a negative role model. <laughs> and then this feeling that you cannot aspire to achieve the predominant um, ideas of what success looks like. So I'm like, rah, that's the whole, my whole life is strained then. Do you get me? <laughs> so it's like, rah. So when I read that, I was like, yeah. I was like, this is, and it kind of gave, like, like, when I saw that, I was like, it gave language to um, what was normal for me, my peers. And, but again, it's like, that can't be the only story. Although we saw many, many examples of that, actually, my core group of friends actually were amazing. And many of them doing like amazing things now. And we were all in the thick of whatever, you know. Um, but again, what frustrated me was how easy it was to just end up in all sorts of situations and how many young people that we would have worked with that were full of all types of potential. And um, it's it just because of circumstances, because of decisions that they made as well, um, whether that was their lives taken or whether that was them making a decision where they had to go away and do time for a long time. And then like, you know, me and my wife are visiting, visiting them in prison, um, there, I don't know, there's like a sense of frustration about the circumstance of certain aspects of what it's like to grow up in the inner city. Not all aspects, because some of it, if I was to be honest with you, much of it for me that I found as an entrepreneur anyway, is that it's contributed to like what I like to, to describe as a, as an unfair advantage on my part. Like earlier on, I said it in passing, but I was like, because of the estate where I grew up, it kind of forced you to be able to relate to all people, all types of people. Had like our, so like I lived in a in a tower block, 
on the sixth floor. I don't know why the council did it like that, but it's like there was a lot of Iranians and Albanians all on one floor. Do you get me? But you're, you're chopping it up with them and then you're going, and then I don't know, honestly, on the, on the, I think on the second floor, we had a lot of the Somali community. Like there was a variety of people. And then as an entrepreneur, there's a variety of people that you have to relate to, you know? Um, so all of these things have, like, that's helped. So I think it's that ability to like reframe some of these experiences, I think. And then it's, it's easier said than done, but actually when done well, it can be massively valuable, I think. Yeah. Let's talk about you, uh, your experience working in the approved pre-referral mm. unit. Mm. And in on that, mm. taking it back a little bit to your concepts of support and mm. support and challenge. That's it. That's it. Uh, do you feel like mm. the, student, the students that ended up in that particular environment, were they lacking mm, the support, support and, and the challenge? That's growth? good. That's good. It's a really good question, man. <clears throat> um, trying to think, man. It's hard to give a catch-all because every student's experience is so unique. Um, the students that arrived where I was working in, in the Peru, while they were there, did they receive support and challenge? I would say yes, in varying degrees. I would say like there was an amazing um, food tech teacher who actually wasn't a qualified teacher, but she didn't play games, you know, that like you couldn't really play about in her food tech lessons, you know. Um, she taught them such an amazing life skill that there's a respect that comes when someone's taught you how to cook a meal that you can now cook at home and you've cooked it in a lesson and you get to walk home with it and you can eat it or share it, you know? So there was a respect that she fostered, but I would say that was definitely contributed to her ability to just bring both support and challenge. You didn't rant with her. You didn't rant with Rosie. She would tell you about yourself. You didn't play around. So what was really interesting is that for some of them that might get reintegrated into mainstream school, or go on to other pathways. What was quite common is that after a couple of years, they will come back to the Prue and one of they'll be chatting small small talk. And then before you know it, where's Rosie? Is Rosie here? And then I'll go and spend a decent amount of time with Rosie. And I would say, because of her ability to bring both support and challenge. Um, but again, everyone's got different preferences and different tendencies that for some of us, we might bring challenge and support more naturally some of us might most of us kind of lean to one particular side and through being aware you're able to kind of think how do I you know balance it out in a way that's effective um but I would say in the in, in that the prude that I was in I would say I think they did a decent job if I was pressed to say where the preference was I'd definitely say it was more support but I would definitely say challenge was present as well but it was more support. Yeah. Well, I guess maybe in the Peru, mm. they would, you'd have that aspect of like the support and the challenge, but then the circumstances that lead to the students getting in the first place, you mm. feel like it was a, uh, and I don't like doing the, putting the blame on the parents. That's it. Yeah, yeah, really yeah. not a fan of that kind of thing. Yeah, but, yeah. you know, do you think there was an aspect of them lacking that kind of support and challenge at home or yeah, yeah, within yeah. the school system that they were in yeah, before, yeah. in their environment? It's good, man. Is it that the string theory? There was a string theory? Strange, strange. Strange theory. Yeah. So is it something like that? Mm. No positive role model, negative role model mm. come to life? Is it, I guess, a combination of a number of different things? But yeah. I wonder if there's like some kind of a common thread yeah. that ties all of those students together. That's a that's a key thing. I think, I think there is a reality in which, um, yeah, a lack of support and challenge from significant um significant adults in your life definitely plays a part, you know. I think if we were to look at it through the strain theory lens, <laughs> that was present in most of like the students and, and, the, and some of the staff, like that was, that was life basically. Yeah. God, still living on Andover and going to work. Yeah. Do you get me? That was still life, yeah. you know? Um, um, it's, a, it's, it's a mixture, isn't it? I definitely think there is a reality that all of these things play a part, unfortunately, you know? And I think creating spaces for, for students to pause and reflect and untangle some of these things. Um, like we just love doing that in a scope, basically. Yeah. You know what? I feel like I've got to take it forward a bit mm. yeah? because 
I was originally not planning to spend too much. That's all right. <laughs> That's absolutely fine. Like, yeah, yeah. I'm like, well, it's so interesting yeah, talking yeah. about all this, your early work and everything like mm. that. And I love hearing about everything. Like, it's good to set that foundation and to mm. learn ahead of a lot. That's, that's <laughs> all good. To you. That's all good. But, we take it forward a little bit and mm. uh, talk about some of the work you're doing now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we can get some of that in as well because you're doing some great work on Scope and I respect it, man. Thank and, um, you so much. We should much. spend yeah. some time talking about that. Mm. Um, one thing I read about mm. that you do in Scope is that you um, wrote it down. Let me see. You reconnect professionals to their why. Mm. So I'm guessing that's the schools and everything you mm. work with. How do you, how do you do that? Yeah, how do you do that? And mm. also flipping it back to talking to them because I feel like mm. sometimes from a personal perspective anyways mm-hmm. it's easy to tell people mm. like you know to advise people do is mm. do that but it's not always as easy to continually remind yourself of the advice you're giving someone else oh of course you, you get yeah, what I'm saying yeah 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 yeah. because yeah, 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 you yeah, can so tell cool. them but it's, it's, so, it's sometimes yeah, without yeah. someone telling you, you you realize oh you're just in emotion of it living yeah, day to day so that how do you get these people to reconnect with their why in the first place mm. and then you as an individual how do you personally reconnect and with your own way on a mm. continual basis in the work you're doing I hear that that's a great question so I'll start yeah I'll just... and also actually yeah, for people that don't know what Interscope is yeah. oh, for people that know yeah, yeah. so wait so Interscope is a coaching company we're a coaching company and we work with learners and leaders nationwide um, it started off with a couple of secondary schools close to Andover State and, and now we work with like like we worked with schools in like Qatar um, online Spain um, we cover a lot of um, the UK though a lot of, a lot of driving <laughs> basically <laughs> but, but in terms of in-person work we, we, we're, we're nationwide and um, but we do do like you know international stuff online um, core aspects of our work around leadership development team communication and applied emotional intelligence for both learners and leaders and to, the, to your point around the question around the why how we do that with staff, I think it's important, isn't it? I think it's important to create space for professionals that are in a very like laborious, um, like teaching, working with teachers, you know, my wife was a teacher for seven years. So I had firsthand experience of like, you know, living, walking alongside uh, a teacher and actually she used to head up a, a cent- what effectively was a pupil referral unit for the last two years of her teaching. And it's a, it's, it's a, it's a labor of love and actually super hard and difficult. And, you know, sometimes it can be thankless. Um, but the role that amazing teachers play in the life of students is amazing. It's like, it's invaluable. I can pinpoint as an underachiever, like a quite a professional, <laughs> quite, a, <laughs> I was an excellent underachiever as a student, but you remember those professionals that kind of got you to see beyond what how you were showing up like you can't forget that um so for me because I've been on the receiving end of that I have a tangible experience of its significance of its significance so with that being said it then means that what I'm I'm able to help professionals reappreciate what it was that drove them to what they're doing in the first place basically um, in a role and in a space where actually it can be quite quite thankless, basically. So we do it through coaching. We do it through keynotes with staff teams. For myself, again, I do. Th- <laughs> I feel like I don't know. I, I think it's just. I think definitely my formative years. Um, like my thing is trying to switch it off. Do you get what I'm trying to say? It's not really trying to reconnect with it. Yeah. It's trying to dial it down and be present. Because I'm super passionate about what I do. I love what I do. And I, I find so much joy in what I do. And I've applied myself to learning core competencies in what I do. So it means that it works quite well. It's hard for me to switch off, my wife would definitely say. <laughs> do you get me? So, um, yeah, so that's a key thing in terms of like, for me, I, I, I don't find that... I struggle with being connected to my my core drivers, to be honest. Um, life is life, though. Things get hard, and but usually that's not really my my issue, to be honest with you, because uh, I feel like I've I feel like I'm in my my my, my sweet zone, basically. If I was to be honest, yeah, oh, that's nice. I guess when mm. you find that when mm. you find that thing, that mm. thing you're passionate about, then yeah, yeah, yeah. 
But yeah. <laughs> then there's no stopping you. Yeah, like, yeah, in fact, yeah. you got to try and t- turn it down. And if I was to be honest, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. Like, what role do you feel storytelling has to play mm. um, in driving positive change? That's a massive, massive question. Yeah. That's the whole podcast in itself. <laughs> yeah. um, the role of storytelling. Like, in you talk about storytelling quite a bit. Mm. <laughs> I do. I'm going in. Yeah. Uncle we Well, like, at one point, yeah, I've just got a particular uncle, man. And like, yeah. There was always a to say this, to say, <laughs> to say, to say that he, he would say it like this, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, as a Ghanaian man, we don't rap with, with stories. So I think culturally that's just kind of in there. And then, um, and then, um, but then I came to learn as well that, you know, based on a neurological level, there's amazing things that happen when stories are being told, um, which make them inherently engaging. So, but to your question in terms of why, what is the role that storytelling can can play in terms of um, shifting things, making, driving changes? It's massive because actually we frame meaning on stories. We frame meaning, like practical one is like, I've got my little, I've got a son who's like, <laughs> he's like a little Einstein sort of thing, like, like a month ago, no, but three months ago, I came down the stairs, he's like, dad, do we have any, he's four now. He would have been free at the time. He's like, Dad, do we have any hydrogen peroxide? He's he's like that. He's like that. He's one of those who will tell you how the names of the moons on Mars. Like he's on all of that sort of stuff. So um, his mom and I, we decided to um, get him a Rubik's Cube. And I decided to get one too. So we'll both learn at the same time. So I'm looking at a YouTube tutorial and I was struggling. I've been struggling. But there was one tutorial where... Um, the way in which they're teaching how you can do a Rubik's Cube is through story. So you've got this and you've got a daisy and the daisy gets blown away and then there's these rabbits and you've got to connect the rabbit. And as this one's telling me this simple story, it's, it, I'm, I'm looking at this complex Rubik's Cube, but it's starting to make sense in terms of how I should perceive it and the role I can play in order to get to where I want to go. And I think stories do the same thing just on a wider scale. It, they've got a way of inviting us to perceive things in a particular way and the role that we can play in terms of where we want to go. And I think that like in leadership, in community organizing, in a variety of spheres, that's a big deal. Yeah. It's amazing. Mm. Um, based on your experience of all the work you've done with young people mm. through Interscope, through your work before, mm. everything like that, uh, what do you feel schools and people mm. that work with young people can be doing mm. better than mm. we're doing right now to better support young people? That's a great question, man. To set them on a better path and set them up for more success moving forward. As someone that runs a coaching company, like, I'm going to say coaching. <laughs> <laughs> like, I can't lie. I think coaching is, when done well, it's just amazing. And what we see um, in terms of the journey that young people go on and what they say when our coaches has have gone in and like really like listened to them, challenged them, supported them, um, and really reminded them of like their agency and the uh, uh, possibilities that are available to them, like it's priceless. So I think creating spaces where students are challenged actually to reflect um, and equipped with tools that help them navigate, I think is massive. But that being done in a collaborative way, I think is important. You know, I think um, they say you can do, th- I can do something to you. I can do something with you basically. And I think doing it with, I just think it's just a bit more, it just facilitates a bit more autonomy and agency for, for students and young people. So I, I think wherever there's space for a coaching approach to be incorporated on a, on a day-to-day level, I think it's going to be healthy for the students on the other side of that. Yeah. That's nice, man. Mm. That's nice. And we've got to wrap up soon. That's all good. Uh, so as we're preparing to wrap up, mm. final question for you. Mm. What advice would you give to other Black British social mm. entrepreneurs, change makers, people looking to do good work in their yeah. lives, in their communities? What advice would you give them? That's a great question, man. Mm. I think I, I can, that's, that's another... Uh, that's just, I would definitely say... There's oh, so much I could say. I'm literally genuinely trying to think where to start. I feel like, if I was to be honest, yeah, for me, what we do, I would like to say that part of my secret sauce, if I was to be 
honest with you is love. Like if I'm thinking I'm going to create a new concept or a coaching journey for a young person or a staff team, and I'm literally thinking to myself, if that young person was my child, if that young person was my niece, my nephew, what would I want them to experience? That's going to add genuine value. And then I create from that place. I've just seen that it resonates really well. So that's important. Loving what you do, loving your craft, I think forces you to want to be really good at what you do. Once you've done that, it's all, it sets you up. Because now the issue isn't about what you're offering now. It's about distribution. How can I effectively distribute the thing that I'm offering? If the thing that I'm offering has been attended to with diligence, passion, then, then now I've got a solid thing. Now I'm having another conversation about how I distribute it. So there's that. A massive thing I would say is please read um, E-Myth from Michael E. Gerber. That's an important, an important, I would say from a, from a black British perspective, super important because many of us are amazing technicians and amazing um, professionals in our craft, but that doesn't necessarily translate as running a business. And there's different competencies that are required basically. And so with that particular book, he just breaks down the distinction. It's called the E-myth because he's saying that everyone calling them themselves an entrepreneur is really a myth. You're an entrepreneur when you can step back from your business and it can still work without you. And for many of us, we spend so much time functioning in a way where if I bang my toe and I need to be in bed, I'm not going to be able to feed my family. I don't see that as a loving thing to do for my family. So it forced me to say, I need to make sure that this thing can function without me. So that, that book, there's many others, but that book for me, absolute game changer. And when I deal with, um, you know, when I deal with like brothers and sisters in my community that are starting the journey of business, put it this way, if I've told you about the E-Myth, <laughs> it's come from a loving place. It's like me saying, this game changer here, please. So that's what I would say. I can be here for a very long time. And, um, you know, yeah, I would say read the E-Myth. That's what I would say. Nice one. Appreciate mm. it, man. Thank you for coming. Pleasure. Down, Absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure. And love what you're doing. Keep on doing your thing. You. Absolutely amazing, man. Thank you, man. Um, before it, man. we wrap up, if mm. people want to keep up to date with you mm. and the work you do, mm -hmm. I can they best do so. So our website is www.innerscope.co.uk and that'll speak to, um that'll show you about the work that we do um, in the education sector. I'm very, very um active on LinkedIn. So if you just type in James Adu, A-I-D-O-O, then you'll find me there. And those are kind of like the main places you'll find me. Yeah. Cool. Nice one. So thank you for coming on once Pleasure. again. Pleasure. Appreciate you coming on, people. Mm. If mm. you haven't subscribed, please do subscribe. It helps us a hell of a lot. We're trying to get 1,000 inspirational changemaker social entrepreneurs onto this podcast and essentially change the world. Get these positive stories out there as far and wide as we can. So please do subscribe, like, share, and tell your friends you share to subscribe, like, share with their friends as well. And let's uh, get more positive stories out there. But I'll start for now. This is 1000 Voices. We had James AD on the podcast. Thank you. And for now, people, we're out. Thanks. Thank cool, you. Man. Oh,